Hello, everyone, and welcome to As We Like It, your brand new favorite Shakespeare interpretation analysis podcast. I think that sums us up pretty quickly. Uh, I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And this was really born out of a Twitter conversation where I think it was Avon was saying I needed to watch the Kenneth Branagh version of Hamlet. And then we were just kind oh, of no, talking no. Wait. about... I'm sorry to already correct you. I was saying you needed to watch the ha- Kenneth Branagh version of Much Ado About Nothing. The Hamlet is not very good. <laughs> oh, okay. There we go. I just don't. I don't want to be. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't want to be betrayed by bad taste that early on. <laughs> All right. So Avon was saying I needed to watch the Kenneth Branagh version of Much Ado About Nothing, and I decided we kind of workshopped that it would be fun to watch different movie adaptations of Shakespeare and analyze them based on their qualities as films and as adaptations. Mm -hmm. Because you have watched some of them, I think, but you said you hadn't really seen a whole bunch of the stricter um, interpretations. That is the ones that are just straightforward play adaptations. Yes. Yeah. Whereas that's something we've watched a fair number of in the past and liked a lot. Yeah. Most of my experience with Shakespeare is is in the theater, mm-hmm. either as a community production, high school production, or a couple of times Shakespeare in the Park. Uh, I saw a production of King Lear at the Brooklyn Academy of Music starring Frank Langella. Mm. Yeah, we've that's actually describes my experience of it too. In theater, I haven't seen very. I've seen a couple of Stratford plays. That is, sorry. Stratford, Canada, Stratford, Ontario, Canada plays, <laughs> I should be clear. Um, but the Stratford Festival is very good. And I've seen a couple. But other than that, a few at the NAC, I think, um, most of what I've seen have been on screen. And I've read the plays and studied them in school and things. And I've seen a few in sort of academic settings. Right. Um, university you know, kind university of. University settings. Mm-hmm. So. And you have taught them. I've taught uh, a number of Shakespeare plays, mm-hmm. um, some of them quite a few times. Yeah. I met Avon and Mark on Twitter, I think it was six years ago now, which is almost impossible to believe that I've been on Twitter for that long. You were uh, a callow little undergraduate. I, yeah, so I was... Sorry. I was still at the University of Arkansas doing my undergrad, and I my, my undergraduate minor was medieval and renaissance studies and then uh i might have my degree is in anthropology and i was focusing on kind of roman ruins so tell how about you guys tell me in the audience how medieval studies and roman ruins ties into you two <laughs> all right so i'm a classicist and i did my all of my degrees in classics undergrad masters and phd all at the university of toronto i just never left and I study Latin poetry. So, but I think it was actually you, Mark, who first met John, wasn't it? Yeah, because of uh, medievalist stuff. So I'm a medievalist. Uh, I did my undergraduate in in an English uh, department, but all of my graduate work was in a medieval studies department. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and and in a very interdisciplinary medieval studies department. Mm -hmm. Um, So I tend to I particularly when I got onto you know Twitter for the first time, I was finding uh, all kinds of medievalists in various you know uh, areas of medieval studies, mm-hmm. um, and so that was I guess the the original uh, connection. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember those early days of Twitter are a total haze to me now. <laughs> I can't even remember how I found most of the people I know, but I'm I'm sure that you and John became friends first. Mm on Twitter or we followed one another. And then I started intruding myself because I do. And, <laughs> well, and, and it was very, I was very uh, self-consciously trying to find other medievalists. Mm-hmm. So anyone who had like medieval in their bio was like, Oh, there's okay. Here's another medievalist. Oh, do you remember back in the days of early Twitter when you actually just looked for anybody who had medieval yeah. in their bio because there were so few people on Twitter. Oh, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've kind of since strayed a little bit because yeah. my master's, which I finished two years ago, uh, and I'm currently taking a break. Uh, I went to the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University, and mm-hmm. my degree is in, quote unquote, the history of art and archaeology, which is like a massive field. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing is that a modernist gets the same degree, even though they never do archaeology. So I focus on uh, classicism within architecture, but mm-hmm. as this kind of cultural unit that, uh, you know, when did it begin? What does it mean in different time periods? And what is this like weird lineage of uh, prestige and interpretation of the classical Mm-hmm. Which is one of the reasons that you and I have had lots of conversations about those sorts of things, though they all they do is ever 
all our conversations ever do is expose my entire ignorance of classical architecture and its reception. <laughs> I am so hopeless at those things, being very much a literature person. <laughs> and and the funny thing is, um, you know, I dug at an archaeological site in Turkey with the desktop mm-hmm. on my wallpaper right now. The way the <laughs> wallpaper on my desktop right now is of the uh, tetrapylon at Aphrodisias where I dug. And, you know, I have 99.9% greater right to call myself an archaeologist than I feel like, you know, any person you would just like meet off the mm-hmm. street. But I really, really don't like calling myself an archaeologist because, you know, I'm not a classicist. I mm-hmm. don't do Latin that well. I don't really feel like I'm a classicist. I feel like I'm more interested in classics f- from now, you know, from our current perspective. Yeah, reception, uh, like, broadly yeah, re- speaking. I know that's a very, that's a, pr- a loaded term too, but the classical reception. Well, and this kind of um, Ouroboros of of, uh, historiography, Mm -hmm. how historiography throughout the years kind of creates its own then interpretation of classicism. So the way that the 19th century viewed antiquity and that the way that they restored their monuments then affects the way that we view antiquity and restore our monuments. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating field. It's certainly not, it's not mine, uh, but it's, it's one that I kind of intersect with from time to time. And when I think about reception and when I try to explain uh, where classics as a field, when I think about classics as a field, which I do do for teaching and for other purposes, uh, that becomes a really big issue. I still tend to think of it more from a literary perspective because that's how I go at it. But it, the issues are similar. Yeah. And then Mark just sits in his medieval castle. <laughs> <laughs> saying oh you all just pronounced latin wrong (laughs) (laughs) but because you're in english the other part of you who you are mark is english yeah so i teach in an english department uh so i'm teaching largely literature these Mm days um but really my my sort of you know background and research and everything is more in language history Mm -hmm. so um you know the, the literature stuff is really kind of a holdover from my undergraduate in a way. Yeah. But in terms of your approach to Shakespeare, in terms of my approach to Shakespeare, it, it's very much informed by my teaching more mm-hmm. than anything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is just, you know, the, the, the very straightforward, um, you know, universally level literature kind mm-hmm. of approach. Yeah. So you teach Tempest and things. Yeah. This is kind of a, uh, kind of a crossover for us because yes. <laughs> I, I kind of have my own little podcasting empire called the extracurricular where it's all about kind of reading works and just, it's basically a book club um, mm-hmm. p- style podcast chapter by chapter. So uh, the talking Tolkien, I started about 10 months ago, which we're mm-hmm. reading Tolkien chapter by chapter and talking about it very clearly in the name. And then there's another one uh, called grape shot where we, Get drunk and read the canon, grape shot, <laughs> canon, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I've got to say, you're, the Talking Tolkien has done a wonderful job of um, helping me not have to reread the Similarillion. Because <laughs> I did read it one summer at the cottage when I was a teenager and there was nothing left to read. I had read everything else on the shelf at least six times and I couldn't face them again. So I finally read the Silmarillion. I didn't understand a word of it. It made no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, I don't think I'd actually read Lord of the Rings at that point. So well, you can understand why I was a little confused. Yeah. And so listening to you guys talk through it was wonderful because I felt no urge whatsoever to reread it. But it was really interesting to hear all about it. <laughs> now, The Hobbit, on the other hand, I have read and The Lord of the Rings and I do enjoy them. So I've been enjoying that podcast mm. thoroughly. But this <laughs> Silmarillion was great. <laughs> it filled in all the gaps without me having to read the damn thing again. <laughs> Uh, yes, and then we have our own podcast called The Endless Knot. Which, yeah, it's, just, uh, it's a kind of outgrowth of YouTube videos that I make on language history and culture, how it relates to culture more broadly. Mm-hmm. And we've been trying to sort of expand that from talking about the videos and and that kind of issues, but also just chatting about history and language and teaching and the things that come up to day-to-day in our thinking about the world and uh, we're gonna have some more interviews and things and then looking generally at uh sort of interdisciplinarity on mm-hmm. the way ways things connect in surprising ways uh, in in one's life or work or uh, intellectual thought yeah mm-hmm. yeah so on that theme 
It's good to connect with you, John. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Make a connection between fields. And I think that's, I mean, that's an underlying theme of your own work, isn't it? Well, I mean, with my approach to art history, because I think right now I very squarely am an art historian. Yeah. Is that I'm really, really opposed to this rather artificial breakdown by period. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't believe it's 2015 and people are still saying, you know, I'm a Renaissance scholar. I'm a medieval scholar. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's weird to me <laughs> that that is the if primary. If that's your lifestyle choice, it's okay. <laughs> if you want to be a scholar, period, a periodized scholar, that's all right. But it, it's just, it's weird to me that that's still such the primary method yeah. and that, yeah. that, you know, diachronic or longitudinal studies are, are not very in vogue. Although what I discovered when writing my thesis, which was uh, kind of the longitudinal examination of the baths of Diocletian from their construction to the present mm-hmm. is that it is incredibly hard to do this kind of work because you're, you, ha- you basically make a bibliography for each period, not because that's how the history works out, but because that's how the scholarship works out. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's in a way what happens to you when you do the, your video work, Mark. I mean, you're, you're yeah. jumping around periods yeah. from here to there and trying to tie them all together and take the sort of, a. Uh, uh, a global approach to it when each period has its own focus and it's, you know, the historians in those periods have their own focus and their own concerns and their own thematic ideas. Now, at least, you know, language history is traditionally more open to, uh, development development period over time. So, um, it's more of a natural fit in a sense, but then I try and take it into, yeah, other areas of culture, history, where it is much more compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that can be, it's, a, it's, yeah, I agree. It's frustrating to, I mean, mm-hmm. even I say that as somebody who works very firmly in one period, <laughs> and is totally ignorant outside of that. Well, no, not totally ignorant, but fairly ignorant outside of that period. But still, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I agree with that, that it's, it's always artificial to make those periodizations. And it can sometimes be not just artificial, but really, Restricting. Uh, restrictive or uh, falsifying it can yeah. it can make lead you to incorrect conclusions when you think only within one period we started with the julie tamor directed tempest and why <laughs> well why is i think because i really wanted to see it i hadn't uh, uh the tempest is is one of the plays that that's in my regular teaching rotation Mm-hmm. That's one of your favorites. One of my favorites. Yeah. And I know the play really well. And I really wanted to see this. I've been meaning to get around to watching this this adaptation. Mm-hmm. So this was a good excuse to do it. Also, it happened to be on Netflix. So it was easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my first question is, do you have any other experience with Julie Taymor? I don't think so. Um yeah, I was trying to remember. I thought you talked about, you know of some of her adaptations, but you hadn't actually seen any of them, right, Mark? No. Yeah. And no, I I knew of her from The Lion King and a few things like that. And uh, I've now listened to that podcast uh, that you recommended, John, with the interview with her, and it was very interesting. But I didn't actually know her very well as a filmmaker before we saw it. Yeah, so with regards to her film career, uh, this is only the second Julie Taymor film I've seen. I saw... Her Beatles jukebox musical oh, across the universe. Of course, we did see that. Oh, that was the one that. we saw. Yeah, yeah. Okay. of course we did. I didn't realize that was her actually. Yes, I. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I I I liked it um, with with some reservation. Partly, Mark would just be happy to see anything that allowed him to watch <laughs> Beatles songs for any extended period of time <laughs> so <laughs> your, your your desire to listen to Beatles colors yeah. your desire to watch that movie I think and there's nothing wrong with that but I feel like they it, it took a little bit of the wackiness and, and pumped it up way too much yeah I, I, like the Dr. Robert bit. yes right I yeah I, I felt it, it was a little precious isn't maybe quite the right word but a little aware of itself as being um ever so intelligent in a way or something i don't know i it didn't feel completely natural as a movie that yeah, one it seemed a bit forced at times mm-hmm. that was i think that would be my my kind of criticism of it so it, it has some nice moments mm-hmm. um there's some good set pieces in it. yeah 
But and so with regards to that, I kind of felt that way about watching The Tempest as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to that, uh, she directed a version of of Titus, which was her first film yes. and her first Shakespeare film. Right. And I really want to watch it primarily just because it was shot on location in uh, EUR in Rome, which is a really architecturally interesting part yeah. of the city. Yeah, I I learned about that from listening to the um, podcast interview. Um, what is it called, John? Uh, uh, here's the thing. Right. Um, with Alec Baldwin. And I didn't know about it. I'd like to see it because Titus is not performed a lot. No. It's and a certainly not filmed that often. Reasons, yeah. So, so I would, would certainly be, be interested in that. Yeah. yeah. Outside of her film context, I have seen The Lion King on Broadway. Ah, uh, right. Which I actually love. I think it's like the one mega musical that's actually worth all of the hype. Right. Huh. But yeah. I also have all of that nostalgia built in where in the second the musical started, I was basically already crying. Mm. Can I confess something to you? Yes. I've never seen the movie, much oh less the God. musical. No, okay, no, so, no. The li- so the Lion King is... <laughs> I do know it, King believe King. me. Obviously, I know it, and I know of it, and I've seen scenes from it, and I've heard mu- music from it, and I, I've never... It's not that I've deliberately not seen it. I just wasn't quite the right age. Yeah. I was out of school... And it came out and I wasn't really watching movies and certainly not Disney movies. And then it was old by the time we had kids, which doesn't mean we can't show it to our kids. It just isn't, you know, how Disney is. It's harder to find. It's not on Netflix, blah, 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 blah. So I just haven't seen it. And I feel funny about that, actually. (laughs) Well, The Lion King is an interpretation of Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah. And we could definitely, I had already thought about that, of Mm. putting that on the list because that would be our excuse for watching it and showing it to the kids. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, I've obviously heard that it's rather good (laughs) you do understand that i do know that (laughs) so yes i saw the lion king i also had the um dubious honor of actually seeing spider-man the musical on broadway ah now that puts you in a fairly select company doesn't it (laughs) without delving too much into it she basically distanced herself from the project after it became Mm -hmm. a steaming train wreck (laughs) yes i'm mixing metaphors here but Mm. it was i think that probably describes the play too (laughs) it was so bad i mean i could record an entire podcast on how bad it was but i will say there was some interesting staging and that's primarily Mm -hmm. what she's known for i also saw her her production of die zoberflute at the metropolitan opera and honestly i wasn't crazy about it there were elements that i liked but i it, it didn't click with me entirely I mean, I think from listening even to the podcast, the thing that I would take away from her is that what she has is a strong voice and makes strong decisions. And you're going to like them or not like them, but usually you're going to know she was involved. Exactly. Yeah. And what makes The Lion King so success- successful is the way that her vision is manifest. Mm-hmm. You you listen to her talk about her past and she lived and studied in Indonesia for four years doing like tribal yeah. puppetry and indigenous yeah, that was drama. really fascinating. And then to hear her talking about how she used that background in anthropology and understanding the sort of um, folk origins of drama and the way that it has cultural, its, its cultural roots and use that to interpret how The Lion King should be played. I thought that was really interesting and did make me wish that I'd seen it. Yeah. Yes. Which, I mean, The Lion King is kind of inherently problematic because it's hard to distance it from a, like a, a, a racial uh, critique. Yeah. And as it has turned out now, as The Lion King on Broadway is one of the few shows that is almost entirely African-American in its cast and continues to cast new African-American actors. Right. Which is great and also interesting in its own way in terms of racial critique. Yes. But enough on Julie Tamer's career. Let's get to Julie Tamer's (laughs) The Tempest. All right. So uh, what are our first off uh, personal reactions? Well, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it partly because it's The Tempest, and The Tempest is a fascinating play, and I also just love Shakespeare. So I should say that up front, that I assume this is true of all of us, but I really like Shakespeare. <laughs> so yeah. I'm rarely going to hate anything that allows me to listen to Shakespeare in terms of the language. I felt there were some self-conscious elements of it, and there were some choices that made me uncomfortable. And maybe we can come back to that. But there were some things, I think, that were forced on her by the play, but also things that she chose to do that I I found difficult to uh, get on board with. I don't know if that's general enough. (laughs) Yeah, I I enjoyed it too, but I have some 
I have some problems with some of the decisions that she made. Some of them, I think, were, uh, you know, decisions that had to be, you know, made the way that she did them. But there were some that puzzled me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, overall, I think it's, a, you know, it's a problematic production. Mm-hmm. Um I I was able to enjoy it for the for the I think the the kind of interesting elements um that did work but it did leave me puzzled. And I honestly did not like it at all. Okay. I thought as a film it was a complete failure. That doesn't surprise me actually because it felt I think one of that's what I mean about self-conscious. It felt very self-consciously a play in spite of the cinematography and everything. Mm-hmm which were so very non-play-like. I mean, it was hardly a BBC on stage, mm-hmm. you know, filmed play by any means. But somehow it felt very play-like to me. And Ellie, Exactly. Yeah. It strikes me as a really hard play to transfer to film. It's so, I mean, I know this is a bit ridiculous to say about any Shakespeare, but so non-naturalistic. Yeah. That... That's yeah. a big problem with the way that it's transferred to, to the, um, the silver screen. And yeah. I don't know. I tried looking this up, but I couldn't find out too much about the production. She just shot a version of Midsummer, which mm-hmm. is based on a play that she produced and directed. And mm-hmm. she filmed the play. And I don't know if this came out of a similar way where she had already had this play and then she filmed it. Yeah, but I don't it, know. It, it felt like that to me. And a lot of it felt like it was very, very poorly composited and just kind of edited together in a kind of a visual effects way because it was very, very heavy on the visual effects. and Yeah, all the aerial to, stuff, of course. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and true to Julie Taymor, uh, it was all very, you know, fantastic and special, but I, I don't think it, it succeeded. Ariel being my biggest first problem because he looked like Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> Ariel is such a... I mean, every production, whether on stage or on screen or whatever, like what you do with Ariel, I mean, so to get to it, the two things that were very problematic to me were, or two of the things, were Ariel and Caliban. And of course, they are the crucial problems of how the hell you stage that play. So I'm not surprised that, I mean, you got to make some kind of choice with them. And I... It's really tough to make a good choice, I think, even though the writing is the writing of those parts is amazing, but how you stage them the the thing is that that no special effect is ever going to live up to it because there's just so much really unbelievable magical elements that's what I mean by it's not naturalistic like how do you make if you make it look like it's a real world thing Mm -hmm. I mean that's where the stage gets away with it on a stage you can all say okay obviously this is not real Mm -hmm. and that's fine and it's all going to be artificial and that's going to be okay but as soon as you try to make it seem like it's in a real world with a, a a logical setting that you could believe is actually happening Ariel just how the hell do you do that well, and I think that's the clever thing about the play as a play is that I think Shakespeare was playing with this notion, right? He refers mm-hmm. self-consciously to the magic of stagecraft mm-hmm. throughout the thing. So he's he's constantly uh, reminding you that it's this is not real. This is all this illusion. Is all illusion. And... This is this is a play. Mm-hmm. These are actors on stage. These are not real people. These are mm-hmm. actors portraying characters. There is no real magic going on. The magic mm-hmm. is the sort of magic of imagination that happens when an audience interacts with a bunch of actors. And then when you put that on a beach, yeah, it you, all you kind of falls apart. Sort of both ways. <laughs> That's the problem is that if you, I mean, in a sense you have to, I guess, embrace the artificiality of mm-hmm. it because you can't make the, no special effect is going to make it believable because mm-hmm. it's not written to be believable. And and to me, it it felt like they took a bunch of stagecraft and literally filmed it just in situ. So Ariel, I think, was very clearly filmed on like a green screen and then composited in most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it ended up feeling like Pepper's Ghost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it's annoying to me because I thought the performance of Ariel, that is the actual the actor, yeah, and the physicality of the actor was not bad i mean ariel's hard 
and but I thought it was but then all of the effects kind of totally ruined it for me what I really had problems with was when Ariel would be like running and it would turn kind of manic and they would like freeze an image of Ariel every you know every 10th frame or whatever and Ariel would be in five places on the screen at once it it felt a little too much Mm. yeah yeah no I agree I didn't I didn't I liked the performance of Ariel and I didn't like the effects if that makes you know so like yeah it just didn't work for me on the on the note of performances I suppose the most uh, prominent one otherwise would be Helen Mirren as Prospera yeah yeah she was fantastic I thought she was probably the best thing of the whole production yeah, I I mean, I just like watching her do anything she does. It's hard to go wrong. Yeah. And and she um I mean, you know, it's it's, it's cliché, but she's just got the old British Shakespearean approach, which is it wasn't natural. Her presentation was not naturalistic. It was old school sh- British Shakespeare enunciation and projection and all the rest of it to me anyway and that was right that's what she should be she is stage managing the whole production Mm. literally right i mean that's how shakespeare writes it that she is the stage manager that's the metaphor and that's what she does and she she did it and she was powerful and and emotional but i i I thought it was good i i liked her performance but i thought that with what you're saying is how it was very traditionally portrayed Mm -hmm. it caused a lot of um tension with a lot of performances which i felt were not being portrayed in the same kind of schema yeah i agree i agree it it, um when she was on stage and she was doing on stage there you go but when she was on screen and doing her thing she was mesmerizing but when she was interacting with the others it it was sometimes jarring and i don't know if that's sort of a failure of direction or if that was an intentional choice but there was I mean, every actor seemed to have a, a really different style in what they yeah. were doing. Yeah. And I don't know if that was, you know, intentionally it was supposed to be a mixed bag or uh, was this just Tamor not bringing Corralling them together everyone together. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, it did feel really not cohesive at, in terms of a cast. Yes, and, and I feel yeah. like the discrete storylines that were going, you know... Mm-hmm. Which that, is that were, part of the problems of the play, but challenge of the play. But yeah. Or when you're watching the play, you typically have the same set... That is only being minorly redressed. Yeah. And here they're in entirely discrete locations and it doesn't really feel like they belong in the same story. Yeah. And then I've got to say, obviously it was intentional and I wanted to not hate it because I wanted to not be predictable. But Russell Brand, (laughs) it just Uh, didn't work. And it's... He he was playing himself. Which was obviously intentional. And was obviously, like, uh, directorially, because either that or you don't cast him, or, you know, you tell him to do something else. Like, he was clearly allowed and intended to do that. And I wanted to, I was like, no, I'm not going to just be reactionary and think this is stupid and it doesn't, it's, but I couldn't, I couldn't like it. I just, and I, in spite of the various problems with Russell Brand as a person, I kind of like him quite a lot in, in, in his right context. I couldn't, I couldn't like it. It just totally threw me out of the play. And and because he's he's paired up with um, Alfred Molina, they have two very different approaches to what yeah. they were doing with and you know, you need you need those two parts to work together, obviously. They were they were a couple, they're a double act. Yeah. And they oh it and was they did weird. kind of jar. Yeah. I mean it, it might have worked. Russell Brand might have worked if he was paired differently. Uh, I don't know, but uh, certainly yeah. in the context that you know that you drop him, he just stuck out too much. Yeah, and dressing him in in essentially his own clothes, yeah. um, which again wasn't impossible, but nobody else was. You know, well, everybody so else. Yeah. There was a moment that really struck me as anachronistic, and the, I mean, the movie itself was not really being period specific, because no. uh, a lot of the costumes had featured zippers really prominently, not yeah. for utilitarian purposes, but for decoration. And in fact, the movie was nominated for an Oscar for costume design. It was the only Oscar it was nominated for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a moment where Russell Brand is peeing, 
Yeah. And then he like looks over his shoulder and you hear his zipper zipping back up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know it was, I mean, it really was literally his, like, I'm sure I've seen him wear that on QI. Like, you know, like it, the outfit was just the sort of thing he normally wears on the street. Well, possibly not exactly, but pretty much, it looked pretty much like that. And yeah, there was a mix of costume. A lot of, there was a lot of range um, there wasn't, it was clearly not trying to be natural to a period, but I, it just was too much. It just stood out too much to me. It, and his reading of that part was not necessarily impossible, but it just didn't match anybody else's, hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like if you had done it as if the whole pe- and the weird soundtrack stuff of sometimes doing rock and roll and sometimes doing, um, you know, more sort of period stuff. Like, I feel like it was intentional that it was incoherent, but I never really, I never figured out why it was so incoherent or something. I suppose if I were being generous, I might say, well, maybe Tamor was trying to embrace the idea of artificiality and do things that were intentionally jarring. Mm. To keep bringing you out of the... keep bringing you out of the suspension, the story. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what she was, but if I was trying to find a way out, well, I hope she was trying. No, I genuinely hope mm-hmm. she was trying to do that because if she wasn't. Then it's incredibly clumsy, and I don't. She's done too much, I would think, to be that clumsy mm-hmm. to not like to think that I was. She was doing something very coherent and smooth, and produce that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. I suppose to me. you could then make the argument that that she's trying to call attention to the art of filmmaking the same way Shakespeare does of stagecraft. So, with regards to kind of like the rock and roll music, mm-hmm. she's. She's making this movie at the same time that she's building Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Because Spider-Man okay. opened, I believe, in 2010 or 2011. And this movie came out in 2010. Right. And uh, having seen Spider-Man with its music by Bono and The Edge. <laughs> s- sorry, you two fans, but the music is absolute garbage. Yeah. And the thing is, Reeve Carney, who played Prince Ferdinand in this movie, was mm-hmm. the original Peter Parker Oh, and really? He, in yes. The, okay. in, the, in the musical. And he did not come from a theatrical background. He was mm-hmm. the lead singer of a rock band that Julie Taymor discovered. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I actually thought there was a problem with having rock music in The Tempest. That That isn't... It was, it was the back and forth between yes. sort of bursts of that and then other kinds of stuff and... And again, that just the incoherentness. But I, I, I really do think she must have done that intentionally. But I, it just didn't. I couldn't feel like there was a reason for it. I couldn't feel like it it contributed to the story. Yes, especially because most of it, while wasn't really being period specific, was still being very contained in its presentation. Mm-hmm. It was the clearly o- not modern, except when it suddenly randomly was. Well, so her Prospera's. Uh, I guess the main entryway to her lair mm-hmm. felt exactly like a stage set to me. Yeah. Because it, it was, was... Those, those two walls that met. They were very Spartan. There was that door in the background. It looked, that whole scene, that entry, like that whole um, stage set, that part, and that was so weird, felt to me like those old BBC filmed Shakespeare's. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if you ever watched those, John, but I'm referring to the ones we always watched in English class in high school where they were Shakespeare productions that were acted often with very good actors, Mm. but on literally sort of cardboard sets that were just, they were, you know, still cameras filming a stage production, essentially. Mm. Well, you know, three or maybe three or four cameras filming a stage production. And they were very good, but they had, they were good performances, but awful productions. Mm -hmm. And that, set that particular set of the movie it looked almost like it was a deliberate callback to that kind of a shakespearean mm-hmm. performance which is weird in the context of all of that on location filming mm-hmm. yeah well so th- that had me wondering what if that was just the main if I, you know i said i couldn't figure this out but if this was just a filmed theatrical originally yeah what if that was the main set and then they just did all of the location filming in addition right mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because there's some really, but then they put a lot of the central scenes, important scenes out. But of course you have to, I mean, all the ones of the, the rest of the cast, the non-Prospera stuff is, has to be around the, the island. island. That's yeah. the whole point. Mm-hmm. It has to be around the island. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think my biggest problem was not being able to ever feel comfortable one scene to the next and and even within it wasn't even that it was within I think I could have handled it if it was just one scene to the next being different but within any one scene the approach changed some and as you say sometimes one actor would be doing it one way and the other actor would be doing it with a totally different approach and they just never felt like it held together yeah and I that was my comment to my my friend is it, it feels like all of these actors are getting direction from a different person yeah right yeah and 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 most of them doing very good jobs with whatever direction they were given like i thought the individual performances were either unexceptional you know fine or really good Mm. um but they just didn't mesh yeah so what about let's let's shift into this as Mm. not as a movie but rather as a version of the tempest um, what stands out to you? I guess the most obvious one would be Prospera. I think the fact that it, it she wasn't cast as a kind of stunt casting. No. I think she, the way that it was handled was simply, this is a good actor. Who can do this, this, this role part, really well. Yeah. You know, do the part. And aside from a bit of, uh, a little bit of tinkering with uh, the... The background, the, yeah, the story when she tells Miranda about her background, she, they had to they added some lines uh, that just weren't there at all mm-hmm. to to mm-hmm. put it in, and they changed it a little bit around because they had to. And I think uh, it, it just works just on the strength of um, Helen Mirren's mm-hmm. performance. Mm-hmm. So a brief a brief side note to the bit about her background. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my major pet peeves, and this is not because I'm an architecture historian at all, is when... <laughs> no, not of course not. <laughs> is, is when architecture is pre- presented anachronistically. So they were flashing back to her being ejected from Milan, and oh, yeah. that architecture was very clearly not Lombardic. It was very clearly Venetian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I did kind of wonder that. I had a moment because I wasn't paying close attention to the geography of it. And uh, I, I was like, what this? I didn't think they were in Venice. You know, like it just, and I'm not an architecture person, as you know, John, but uh, yeah, that was a bit weird. But But I was reading an interview or a snippet of an interview with Tamor where she says that, you know, Prospera lost her entire life because she was a woman. That's why she was ejected, just because she was a woman. Mm. Um, And that changing it really does give the story a new depth. But then there's also her just discussing, you know, she met Helen Mirren at a party or something and said, oh, I'm doing The Tempest and Helen Mirren saying, oh, I always wanted to do Prospero and they decided to do it. Mm -hmm. So part of it sounds like she's saying changing it is is this really profound statement. And part of it sounds like she's saying I chose the best actor for the job. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I didn't really see it as being a profound statement. No, I didn't no. think it changed the themes. No. The only thing it perhaps changed, but I don't think Shakespeare would see it as a change. The mother-daughter bond to a mm-hmm. modern audience, I think is different than the father-daughter bond. Mm. But I don't know if that would have been true for Shakespeare. Because very clearly in the play, Prospero and his daughter are absolutely bound by love by devotion by every kind of closeness they can have and it's not like a stern i mean he has his moments of sternness but not to her and well to her sometimes but 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 when he does she's like oh he's not normally like this Hmm. you know i mean it's it's he has he has sort of triggers mm. um, that anyone can but but so but so does prospera in this (laughs) but it's not like that stern father and obedient daughter it's it's a very loving relationship Maybe to a modern audience, the mother-daughter relationship has this special connotation that's important to us or something. And you could add that in. But I don't actually think the play needs that. I think Mm -hmm. given that, okay, now you have a mother and a daughter, fine. You can have scenes where it's very mother-daughtery. But in fact, I didn't even think that they really played that up that much. I didn't think it changed anything very much, really. The only other thing I can add is that I guess it would change Miranda's approach to Ferdinand. Literally the only man she'd ever seen? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Because she does make a big deal about that whole she has no one to compare him to. But it's true that technically she has not only Caliban, which is, of course, a thing we should come back to, but her father. Her father. In the original. So now she really genuinely has no, to her, human male to compare it to. Yeah. 
Now, it's been long enough since I've read The Tempest that I couldn't really remember what specifically was retained or dropped or changed. Mm -hmm. But I did notice that it said screenplay by Julie Taymor. Yes. It it is quite tinkered with, um, sometimes just on the level of moving lines around. That's Um, very normal in Shakespeare productions, though. Yeah. And uh, obviously tinkering a few things to, you know, around uh the prospera character Mm -hmm. to make that work um there were two things that jumped out at me as being um more radically more consciously changed to make a change uh and one of which was the the sort of big dramatic scene in the middle when um ariel confronts the three men of sin it's the three men of sin speech right with the with this banquet that gets taken away and then he finally he confronts when the, when he's driving them crazy he's driving them crazy and he confronts them with what they've done wrong and tells them this is this is punishment for what you did uh to prospera and in uh in the play he gives to he, he essentially gives the the option of you will either be punished unless you uh you're sorry for what you did and you you know turn over a new leaf essentially and so one of the major themes of the play originally is I, I would have I would have said is about this idea of sin and redemption that there is a chance to redeem yourself right and only if you fail to take that chance do you get punished do you get punished and in the the movie they take out that the either or he just says he don't, they don't even know what's coming they have no idea why they're being punished yeah until well, just, after yeah the the line specifically that seems to be removed. And do pronounce by me lingering perdition, and it sort of just ends there in in the in the film. But in the play, it goes on worse than any death uh, can be at once. Shall step by step attend you in your ways, whose wrath to guard you from which here in this most desolate isle, else falls upon your heads is nothing but heart's sorrow and a clear life ensuing. So the the notion of their heart's sorrow and a clear life ensuing as the way out of the lingering perdition. I'm going to do this to you unless, unless right. you uh, you feel sorry and you promise to be better. Promise to be better. So they're not given the option, in a sense, to, to mend their ways. Yeah, mm. and that's important in terms of the themes that are involved with Ariel and Caliban. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because the other major line that, that seemed to me to be removed but i think this is perhaps a choice that she had to make uh, particularly with how she handled the caliban character mm-hmm. is that caliban has a moment of saying he's going to change his ways right mm. so he at the end says um you know he has this this line where uh, he says uh, what a thrice double ass was i to take this drunkard for a god which That's is in left the, in yeah, yeah. But he also says in that same speech, uh, uh, speech um, I'll be wiser hereafter and seek for grace. Right. And they take that out. And they, she took she it took, out. She took that out. Mm. Yeah. So there's no uh, idea that he is going to improve no. in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I can, I can understand why she made that choice. Uh, a lot more than I can understand why she well, did the other line. Out. Why she made that choice, having made the choices she already made about made Caliban. Caliban. What did you think about Caliban, John? I thought it was really problematic that yeah. we maintained this age-old kind of light is good, dark is bad paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, he's the only black actor in a very white movie. Uh, and then there was the, the the makeup design. There were kind of splotches of white skin on him. Yeah. And the splotch of white skin on his face, he was then wearing a blue contact in that eye. And that was really uncomfortable for me. And I suspect what she was thinking is she she's sort of drawing on the sources that, that Shakespeare was being influenced by. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he was writing this around the time of um, the foundation of colonies in, uh, in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the discovery of the Bermudas and um, uh, the, the well, you said... Jamestown colony and so forth. Uh, so I think the, I mean, the name Caliban is supposed to remind us of Cannibal, which is the, 
uh, originally the term to refer to uh, the uh, indigenous population in um, I believe the Bermuda Islands or, or um, yeah and and it sort of over the years takes on all these other associations um, so I think she's kind of referencing the history of colonialist mm -hmm. um you know at that time that mm -hmm. the sort of colonialist uh see the thing is that okay so what i felt about it too because john i completely agree i felt really uncomfortable yeah. with it i felt that it was very intentional and it was not um not blind like it wasn't blind to the tensions it was bringing up as a portrayal if yes, that makes sense but i would expect a director who has a background in anthropology to be a little more, I don't know. I, I it, felt it was clumsy. So I, I think she was trying to make us uncomfortable. No, I know. That's what I mean by I thought it was intentional. Yeah. But what I, okay. So obviously the text um, at least allows for, or, you know, a very straightforward reading of the text. She said, it says that Sycorax's mother is from Africa. She's an Af North African witch. Um, this is off the coast of North Africa, clearly. He's native and he's a monster. A, a straightforward reading of the Shakespeare text does, I think, quite legitimately say, yes, in Shakespeare's mind, he probably was some sort of African. He was primitive and black. I, th I think that that is quite possibly there in the Shakespeare. P probably, even. And... If you were doing a completely faithful representation of a period piece of Shakespeare, then okay, you might say, all right, this is a distasteful portrayal, but we're going to do it. We're going to do this and we're going to do, you know, like you, you know, decisions you have to make about uh, Merchant of Venice, about how anti-Semitism is portrayed or things like that. But that's not what she was doing, right? She was doing a, a much more as we've just talked about, kind of piecemeal adaptation where some parts are very traditional and some parts are not. So she had every choice to, she could have made any choice with Caliban. She could have done anything. She was not limited by what Shakespeare wrote. Mm -hmm. And therefore to then take this very traditional um, caricature of the 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 basest most bestial caricature frankly of a black man even though it was you know it was clearly conscious as i say like i don't i don't feel like she was like oh well of course it's how black people act or something you know i mean that wasn't that's not what she was doing but and it was supposed to make us feel uncomfortable but i i just because and you said you say it didn't have a redemption it didn't have a the redemption like well i think she was trying to to make him uh, you know not give in mm -hmm. right? this is the idea is that he at the end you know basically storms out right mm -hmm. um yeah but he also doesn't get anything he doesn't get anything but he, he storms he gets to storm out having been fooled and beaten abused and, and abused yeah. never won and not getting the, and getting the island back but only because nobody else wants it anymore so, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that was probably what she was thinking, but it just didn't work for me. I just... <sighs> no, I, and I agree. I don't think it worked, but I think what she was trying to do mm -hmm. is make him seem like the injured party. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. But it becomes... A, it, it's really uncomfortable to me, especially in comparison to Ariel, mm -hmm. because Ariel was very much being portrayed as this object of desire, this uh, recipient of gaze. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, being basically entirely naked mm -hmm. throughout the entire movie, sometimes being portrayed as, as a mermaid or being portrayed with breasts mm -hmm. and also having so much white makeup applied to basically look like, like I previously said, Casper the ghost. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a very, very uh, literalist reading, but mm -hmm. it, it just reinforced this really uncomfortable paradigm that I don't really think was subverted in the way that she was trying to subvert it. No. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's, that's exactly, exactly my feeling. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that I could see that it was being, that's what I mean by intentional. Like I can see that it was, it was not just a reflex. <laughs> it was not just reflexive racism. I get, I don't, I don't think that was what it was at all, but I just didn't feel, I felt like what it ended up doing was just being the same as those characterizations. Yes. And not 
not questioning them the one way I would want them to if you're going to put that in. Because the thing is that the the, the Tempest storyline, which she pretty much stuck to, has Caliban as a less than human. You know, it's a subhuman. He's subhuman and he's irredeemably subhuman, especially without that last line. And frankly, with everyone else being white and one irredeemably subhuman black person, I don't think that no matter how, you know, ironic you make one line here or one line there, I don't think it rescues it. Well, and I think, I'm, you know, this is one of the the ways that um, the play is, is usually examined is in terms of, you know, what it does with the, the slavery narrative, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um that you know it sort of sets up this contrast between you know the the unwilling slave and the willing the good willing servant mm-hmm. right ariel ariel mm-hmm. um and i think that could have been um a really interesting um narrative to subvert and i she may have been trying to do that mm-hmm. i don't think she's successful in doing that but mm-hmm. i i wonder if that's what she was setting out to do mm-hmm. And that was because with her Ariel was more recalcitrant than some Ariels. Yeah. Had more of that, that scene where Prosper has to remind him of his, of how much she did for him. And the thing is that, I mean, one of the things for me about The Tempest, I know it's one of your favorite plays and it's a very rich play. It's not one of my favorite plays at all. And one of the reasons is because I don't like Prospero. Mm. I've never liked Prospero. I've always thought he was an asshole, well, frankly. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, that, that is kind of the point. And I think it is part of the point, but like, I, I think that's in, in the play, and I think that's where we're supposed to think like that. He, but... has, he has a short fuse, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's constantly... But he's not just has a short fuse. He's entitled and yeah. um, uh, narcissistic and a bunch of stuff. And, and I think that that's all there. I don't think mm-hmm. that I'm... Like, I think Shakespeare wants us to think that about him. I just have trouble... Um, I don't like stories that... I don't like the main characters of, in general, as much as I like characters I do. Sorry, John? You might say he's tempestuous. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure that is deliberate, that he is stormy. Well, and it's an examination of what makes a good ruler and what makes yeah. a poor ruler. And I think we're, we're to understand that, um, you know, the Prospero character is, at his heart, not a naturally good ruler yeah and actually that's interesting what you said about julie tamar saying about why prospera is kicked out john because i think in the play prospero is kicked out partly because he's not a good ruler as you say he neglects his the whole the 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 background that's changed that, that that speech that she has to miranda which has changed one of the things in it is in the original he says prospero says I was interested in magic and all these things and I I paid attention to that and I I ignored my and I left all of the ruling of the kingdom to my brother. Mm-hmm. And that's what gave him the opportunity to take the kingdom away from me. But if you read that sort of intelligently you see oh well you, you ignore you you completely neglected your kingdom. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not such a big you know surprise that your your kingdom rose up against you. But if when Julie Tamar says that she wants to sort of reinterpret that, that she lost it all because she was a woman, I think that's a misreading of, I well, think, yeah. obviously it's a misreading because she's not a woman originally, but I think that that um, negates an important storyline that's in the play itself. Yeah, that it is a failing on Prospero's part and that he is essentially the same person when he goes back, but he has, he realizes that he has to constantly be working against his own nature. Right. To, in order like, to be a ruler. Hence the throwing away of the staff is yeah. uh, his his mixed. conscious, very... but it's his conscious attempt to restrain himself, yes. to say, okay, I have this power, but I have to not use it because I know that doesn't make me a good ruler. Which is why, you know, in the scene when he suddenly remembers the uh, the plot um, of the, you know, the clowns to murder him and right. take over the island, they're obviously not a real threat. He can easily, uh, he can easily stop them. Yeah. But he gets upset with himself i mean you know his daughter says i've never seen him that angry before Mm. why would he be that angry at such a trivial plot against his life that he could easily take care of it he's not really angry at the plot he's angry at himself for almost falling back into his old ways and forgetting neglecting neglecting his responsibilities Mm -hmm. right 
or mm. her in the case of Prospera. And I think the idea is that, you know, he doesn't really change who he is or mm -hmm. she change who she is. Uh, it's a realization that in order to, to take back control, uh, the character has to, um, fight against, you know, restrain certain elements of her character, which is the story of Caliban and Ariel too, in some ways. And I mean, to go back to the, you know, is, is the gender inversion really successful or is it just, you know, a good actor playing a good part? I, I wasn't then really sure why Prospera was ejected because she was then the wife of the Duke. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's implied that she was ejected because she was a female, but then also because she practiced magic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, it turns out there was that bit about turning her into a witch, which is definitely like how she was uh, mistreated because she's a witch, which of course is not in the Shakespeare at all. Yeah. Yeah. So then like that reading, I, I've, you know, which was it? Was it because she was a woman or because she practiced magic? And it seems weird that if she was ejected, be, or the way it was constructed to me, at least, it seemed like she was mad because she felt like she was unfairly portrayed as being a witch because she was a woman. Like, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I thought... Uh... I thought that what we were supposed to take from it was that had she been a man and practiced that magic, she would have been fine. But because she was a woman and practiced the magic, she was therefore a witch, a witch. Yeah. that she would have been, a, you know, some sort of a, now that may be me imposing my understanding of those kinds of unfair gender double standards in the, <laughs> in pre-modern times on it. But that was sort of what I took it as, which is fine. It's not an impossible setup. It's not in a Shakespeare at all, but of, but fine, you have to do some changes to, to change the gender. But then given that, the problem with that is then it's sort of, what's the point of, how have things changed by the end of it? What's different? Now that she's proven she's a witch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> completely. Mm. How does that then let her re regain her power? So it, it doesn't make any sense, really. No. Yeah, I'm not sure that justification really. I'm not sure it works, and I'm not sure it's it's fully um, implemented in mm -hmm. the way that the, it's there at the it's, beginning it's and yeah. and it, it isn't really there at the end because at the end it's just pretty straightforward from the Shakespeare text of you know you took my power and it's my power and it was unfair that you took it and you were a usurper and and I'm going to take it back, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, by mm -hmm. the end of it, yeah. And there's no mention really there made nope. of, of magic or unfairness or gender at the end in that scene on the beach. Mm -hmm. I felt it was, I guess I I feel like it was unfortunate because I did love, love having Helen Mirren get those good speeches and have those good scenes. And I did think there was wonderful bits in it. Yeah. And the Miranda girl was fine. Yeah, yeah I think she, she was good. Though, I mean, and this is really Shakespeare's fault, but those scenes between Miranda and Ferdinand are just so saccharine. But I mean, they're intentionally <laughs> yeah, so, but, yeah. but still, yeah, well, they're still hard to sit Well, through. I think they're supposed to come across as cliched. Oh, yeah, play, absolutely. Absolutely. They're just hard to sit through. They maintained my favorite bit of that interaction, which was I always just loved that they were playing chess together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the great thing they do when finally left alone. <laughs> <laughs> they play chess, and and one of the few bits of production design that I thought really worked is the chess set they made. Like the squares were made of just like pouring sand into kind of a square shape. Yeah, uh, yeah. On on dark stone, and then the the pieces were looked like made out of like carved coral or something. I thought that overall it was a very pretty film to watch. There were lots of beautiful things mm -hmm. in it. It didn't necessarily work well together, but I mean. Yeah, there are lots of lovely shots. Yeah, there's a lot of individual things that are are nice on their own, but don't necessarily. But it as a whole, it doesn't hang together. Mm -hmm. So you know, yeah, the, the the beautiful on location work was was really nice to look at, but it jarred with some of the uh, the stagey as aspects of the you know mm -hmm. production. Even those scenes in the woods uh, with the uh, the king and. Uh, her brother and, and I've forgotten brother. all the and his brother. Mm -hmm. They felt really stagey. Like yeah. those felt like yeah. sets. Those yeah. felt like yeah. wood sets of the woods. Yeah. Um and then other scenes were so obviously beautiful windswept actual beaches. Mm -hmm. So Well, I feel like we've uh kind of talked it out. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I 
I will say, I don't feel like it was wasted time watching it. It certainly made me think about the play, yeah. and I enjoyed parts of it very much. Well, I'm I'm just very glad to have seen um, Helen Mirren yeah. do the part, you know, yeah. just to, to hear her read those lines. It could have just been a dramatic reading without a film behind it. And, it would and been... might have been better, actually, that way. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like it would have been better to see it as, as a play, even if it were then yeah. just kind of a filmed version of that play. I think it would have been more successful had it been just a stage production or just a even film with those actors and even with those approaches that those yeah. actors took. Mm-hmm. Well, especially, can... especially oh, sorry, if Ariel had been only on stage, yeah, because yeah. I thought it was a great performance that was totally betrayed by the uh, effects, mm-hmm. personally. And I, you know, I felt that way too about, and this is not Shakespeare at all, but Black Swan. I don't know if you saw it, but Natalie Portman won the Oscar for what really was a great performance. But there were moments where they used CG to kind of embellish oh, yeah. her, and like you know, like little swan feathers like poking out of her. And I felt like that really undercut the power of the performance in a way mm-hmm. that's you know, portraying Ariel in this kind of mantic editing style. I thought that did the same thing. And yeah. If you took, I think, the exact same performances and plunked them on stage, it would have been a lot more successful because when you're seeing something in stage, I mean, one, they're, you know, they're real in person. So you're actually seeing them. There's not this kind of weird disconnect. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, theater has a different pacing. You get intermission and you Mm -hmm. get time to, you know, stop watching. Absorb some of it. Yeah. And then return. And that Mm -hmm. can incorporate really, really major shifts in tone without it being incongruous. Well, and even things like on stage, you see a scene and then there's a scene change. And even if that only takes 15 seconds to do a, you know, lights down, scene change, lights up, it still resets and you're okay. You're okay moving from one extreme to another extreme. Uh, Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I also really do think also that the artificiality of it would have which you know the incongruousness of the various different performances would have worked better in an artificial setting in a purely artificial setting as opposed to against this really naturalistic backdrop it just didn't it never quite worked for me and i mean that's that's far from unique to this you know that's no that's no, the problem yeah. that every film interpretation of a play has which is why you still have to watch the kenneth Branagh's much you do about nothing <laughs> <laughs> Right, I'm just but... we we have to watch that like right at the end, right? Because I'm just going to keep referring to it as this, and so I build it up so much that by the time you do end up watching like it, it, you'll be like, "This is crap. What is your problem?" Well, if if no. you allow me to pick the next one, yes, it certainly should be you. We pick this one, so you should pick the next one. I already know what I want to do, mm-hmm. and it is radically different. Okay, it is the 1999 teen comedy, Ten Things I Hate About You. Right. Uh, That's the, it's um, Taming of the Shrew, is it based on? or Yes, it's based yes. on Taming of the Shrew. Right. Uh, it starts a very young Heath Ledger, very, <laughs> very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Okay. Uh, Julia Stiles and Larissa Olenek play Kat and Bianca. And personally, I'm fond of it just because it's one of my favorite movies from growing up and like being a teenager. Right. But I don't think that it fails in being a contemporary interpretation of Shakespeare either. It helps that it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. But and and they do kind of flirt around. Comedies, all of the comedies, I think, are in general easier to adapt. Yeah. I will yes. like. I I think that to adapt rather than to stage mm-hmm. is different. But to adapt, I think the comedies are easier. Yeah, and and they they totally flirt around with Shakespeare throughout the mm-hmm. entire movie. They're not being you know op- op- uh, opaque about it. They're being mm-hmm. very very you know tongue in cheek. They know what we're doing. Right. Um, but, you know, I just love that movie, and I it would be interesting to see you guys uh, approach it as Taming of the Shrew. Yeah. Well, I think that's that sounds fun. Uh, we can do that. I assume it's on iTunes or something. We'll find we'll it. Find it yeah. um, that I would be happy to do that because I haven't seen the movie. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite looking forward to that. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't make you guys watch it if I legitimately thought it was a bad movie. <laughs> well, that's very nice of you because I'm perfectly happy to make well, you watch bad movies. So I'm quite a fan of the, you know, the, the teen comedy adaptations of uh, literature. Yeah. Because there are a number of well, films that take that approach and they're, they've all, most of them have been really quite good. So, Clueless standing out yeah, as Clueless, probably the yeah. best yeah. ever. But yeah, I mean, there's just there's another one which I haven't seen, which is She's the Man and its interpretation of the Twelfth yes. Night. Yes, we should. And that should go on the list yeah. because it's it's really interesting. Have yeah. you seen it? I have seen bits of it. OK. Yeah. 
All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our first episode. You can catch up with us on Twitter primarily. We've discussed that a couple times. I am at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X. Uh, although I will let everyone out there know that my Twitter ranges from insanely boring to insanely specific. Um, so I don't know that I'm like the best person to follow necessarily. <laughs> I think we're all going to say that. My Twitter is Sarah A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And mine covers everything from classics to cocktails to what my children have done adorably today to uh, Canadian politics and knitting. So I don't know whether you want to follow me either. But if you do, please join in and say hi. (laughs) And my Twitter is uh, at alliterative, A-L-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. See, yours is a real word. You don't need to spell it. (laughs) (laughs) Not a common word, though. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm not on Twitter a lot, uh, but I do reply to uh, you know comments and. You actually so... fairly closely stick to actual things to do with your videos and your podcasts so you know follow mark (laughs) 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 he he won't spend as much time telling you about what he ate for dinner (laughs) yeah well i mean what's funny is that like my twitter kind of groups itself into basically three specific groups and that's like my friends in real life and then there are academic people and then it's like my gay life in new york city yeah. And so I'll be tweeting obsessively about the baths of Diocletian. And then somebody else would be like, nobody cares about that. And I'm like, actually, I'm having a really animated discussion about them with this other person. <laughs> oh, I know. That's exactly what happens with me. No, my Twitter is, I mean, I don't, uh, it, it's so, I have so many split personalities on it. I'll be discussing um, some random piece of British trivia with some friends in the UK that I've never met in person. And uh, knitting patterns with someone else <clears throat> and dis- and uh, treatments of Heracles in Greek myth with someone else and it I, I barely keep it straight It I always think about that I think what does the other group of my followers think of this thing I just tweeted <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's always a bit funny but I mean that's that's the joy of Twitter as far as I'm concerned <laughs>